praise the Lord. Amen. Uh, we thank the Lord always for the opportunity to listen to His Word and to sit at His footstool, so to speak. Our guest speaker today is not a stranger to us because he has preached to us, I think, three times already in the past. And we have always, always been blessed by his preaching. So let's all welcome in our midst, Pastor Tim Carnes. Let's give the Lord a hand, please. So thankful to be here with you. It's been a busy uh, couple of months for me. I've been traveling literally all around the world. Uh, in August and September, I circled the earth. Um, not because I like traveling, but because uh, the Lord's opened up opportunities for me to spend time with fellow pastors around the world and uh, come alongside them. Uh, as we're going to be doing this week with uh, the Expositors Academy, we're going to be doing some training. So I'm going to be working hard on your pastor this week. So I'm going to give him a hard time and lots of homework, okay? You think that'll be good? That'll be good. So just been a blessing to be here. Um, so thankful for the opportunity. And if you would allow me, I would like to say... Hello to my family who's uh, watching online. Hello, Tina. I miss you, and uh, thank you for your prayers. Um, this morning, I wanted to begin our time together in Psalm 8. So if you could please stand with me in Psalm chapter 8. I'll be reading uh, from the New American Standard. The introduction to this psalm begins with, for the choir director on the Gatith, a psalm of David. And this is what David writes. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who's displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, we desire to have the same heart as your servant David has expressed in this psalm that, who sees uh, the greatness of you and your glory and majesty and can only proclaim, O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I pray, God, that this morning that that would be what is echoing in our mind and hearts as we leave uh, the service together, that we would have a greater picture of you that we would have a deeper knowledge and affection for you, that we would be motivated even more to live for you. May your spirit do a work in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I think the focus of this psalm is pretty clear, isn't it? Notice David, the poet, begins and ends with the same phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a psalm of praise. It's a, a song that expresses awe and wonder for the glory of God. This is a poem that David has written as a man who is stunned, literally stunned by the greatness of God. The question I have is what prompted David to write this poem? What is it that stirred his mind and heart to, to declare these words of praise to God? What is it that led him to this expression of awe in the, at the majesty of our great God? You know, when I was a boy, I was always curious about the stars. In fact, my parents had uh, gotten me a telescope for my birthday one year, and so I would sneak out of my room at night, not to do anything bad, but actually to use the telescope and look up into the sky. I still remember the, the first night that I saw Saturn through that telescope. I was just amazed. It was incredible to me. I was probably eight, eight or nine years old. And that fascination, that, that love for the stars did not uh, uh, diminish as I grew older. Uh, I remember in college, uh, there would be times where I would, I, I went to college in Los Angeles, California, and there would be times that, that I would just get away from the city, that I'd go away into the mountains, into the dark hills, there was no light, there was no sound, and I would just go there to look up at the stars. And you know, often when I would... Um, go into that area, into the mountains there, and, and I would sit there under the, the night sky and I would look up. The, the only thing that 
would come to my mind was simply, wow, what a great God. What an amazing God. It was nearly 3,000 years ago that King David found himself on a similar night, looking up into the skies, looking up into the stars of heaven. And the only thing that could come to his mind was, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But sadly for most people in this world, when they look up, up at the sky, they don't have the same thoughts. The same declaration does not come to their mind. Even believers, or those who claim to be Christians, um, I've read many accounts of this psalm, in fact, and, and there are those who claim to know Christ that look at this psalm and read this psalm, and instead of being drawn to glorify God, they actually focus on what it says about man. Rather than declare the greatness of God, they are impressed with the greatness of man. And if that sounds too hard to believe, just take note of what comes out in the many books and sermons and magazines and articles. They're all focused on how to meet our needs, how to fulfill our wants, how to uh, meet our expectations. In fact, often in reading many of these books and listening to many of these sermons, I, I'm often given the impression that God simply exists for us, that He exists to bless us, to fill us, to make us happy. The Westminster Confession begins with these words, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But I think many have replaced that with another catechism, that the chief end of man is to glorify man and enjoy things forever. One of the prominent writers of this movement, Robert Schuller, he said in his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, quote, the single most important question facing the world today, what is this creature called the human being? The need for dignity, self-worth, self-respect, and self-esteem is the deepest of all human needs, close quote. Is that really the most important question? What is man? Is self-esteem really the deepest of all human needs? Is that the thing that we need the most? Is self-respect what is most critical to our existence? Well, I think David has the answers for us in this psalm that I read just a moment ago. And so let's look closer at these words of David where we're going to find that a right self-esteem is only found in a right God-esteem. A healthy self-esteem is achieved only if we have a healthy God-esteem. That's what we're going to see in the psalm here. We see it uh, in three ways. First, through God's, the declaration of, of God being an awesome God. And secondly, David will then describe an apparent question. And then thirdly, he's going to give us an astonishing answer. Let's look first at what David says about his awesome God. Notice, that, again, the psalm begins with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the question is, to whom is this psalm focused to whom is he speaking to here? To us? To mankind? He's speaking to God, right? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is really a prayer, a declaration of praise to God. And consider how he addresses God here. Notice he begins, O oh Lord, our Lord. Now that may sound like he's just repeating the, a title, Master, uh, Lord, but actually in the Hebrew, they're two different words. That first word, Lord, if you notice in your translation, it's all capital letters. That's the translator's way of telling us this is Yahweh, the personal name of God. And then the second word, Lord, the, only the first letter, L, is capitalized because that word comes from the word Adonai, which means master. So here David is actually saying, O Yahweh, our master. You notice how this is very personal and also recognizes God's position. We know Yahweh is the personal name of God, the name that He declared to Moses at the burning bush. He said in Exodus 3.15, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. It is my memorial name to all generations. Yahweh, coming from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which is I am. It's a verb of being. And it tells us that God is the eternally existent one. He's the eternally faithful one. He is the infinite, all-powerful God in His very name. 
And that's who David acknowledges here. In fact, the name Yahweh appears over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. God wants to make sure we know his name. And so here David addresses him personally. Oh, Yahweh, our master, our Lord, our sovereign king. David opens this psalm with the declaration that God is majestic. That word majestic means magnificent, awesome, mighty, wonderful, unbelievable, amazing. Conveys the idea of, of impressiveness, of intimidating power. It is awe. And it is awe that comes to David's mind as he's looking up and gazing into the night sky that is filled with stars. And then notice here how he describes our awesome God. He describes our awesome God in two ways in these first two verses. He first declares the majesty of God as seen in the heavens. And then secondly, he declares the majesty of God as seen in the humble. Look with me again at verse 1. David first identifies the heavens as showing the majesty of God when he says, "...who has displayed his splendor above the heavens." Again, splendor here is a, is a synonym. It's another word for majesty. It refers to the honor that a, a king receives as he's being crowned as king. And so David here is picturing God crowning the universe or showing his glory through crowning the universe. And it's incredible to think about this. I don't know how often. I would always do this as a kid. I would just look up and, and wonder and, and I had questions in my mind as I would look into the sky and realize how, how huge, how vast, how large this universe is. How far beyond and far above the universe is over us. You know, astronomers say that with your eye, you might be able to see on a very dark night um, about 9,000 stars. That's what we can see with our eyes. But telescopes have revealed there's many more than that, right? In fact, some astronomers estimate there's over 100 billion stars within the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we are in. And then from images gained from the Hubble telescope, astronomers have uh, given other estimates that there are over, listen to this, 10 trillion, with a T, galaxies in the universe. 10 trillion. That's a, a one with 13 zeros after it. And each of those galaxies contains billions of stars. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm an engineer by trade, so numbers fascinate me. Here's a big number I want to tell you. So if you add up and multiply those 10 trillion galaxies, billions of stars per galaxy, astronomers estimate over one septillion stars in the universe. That's a one with 24 zeros after it. Just to give you a feel for that number, uh, if we were to collect all the grains of sand all over the entire planet Earth and multiply that number by one million, we're getting close to the number of stars. And those are just the ones that have been seen or estimated to have been seen. We don't even see the end of the universe. It's unbelievable to think about. And now I want you to think about this. Not just the number of those stars, but think about the amount of energy. We have one star that we see every day. It's very bright in the sky, or, or most days anyway. The sun, right? Do you realize the sun generates over 400 trillion trillion watts of energy. And that number might be hard to, to grasp, so think about it this way. The sun puts out more energy in one second than two and a half billion of our largest power plants on this planet put out in one year. One second of the energy from the sun in that amount of time, that's more energy than is produced by two and a half billion of our largest power plants in one year. And think about this. That's just one sun. There's one septillion or more of these all over the universe. And God put them in place with but one sentence. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. That is amazing to me. Unbelievable. Just one sentence and boom! Now that's a big bang. Incredible. David said in another psalm, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands indeed. And as we discover more and more of what that expanse contains, 
We are just more and more confronted with the awesomeness and majesty and power and splendor of God. And that's what David declares here. And it's interesting. After that, you would think that would be enough, but then David turns our attention from the heavens to the earth. From the heights of the glory of the stars that he sees and how that displays God's majesty. And then he draws our attention to something else that displays his majesty. Something else that, that we would not expect. For not only is God's glory seen in the heavens, it's also seen in the humble. Look at what he says in verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You know what David's doing here? He's saying God is so powerful, not only what we see in the heavens, but he's so powerful, he could generate a group of infants and toddlers and defeat the most powerful of enemies on this earth with a bunch of babies. God could do it. And he loves to do things like that, doesn't he? Use the weak and the frail, the insignificant, to accomplish amazing things. In fact, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren, Paul says, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many humble, or excuse me, noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before God. This is seen all through the scriptures. In fact, uh, the very author of this psalm experienced being used by God to accomplish amazing things. We think of David and Goliath, right? Here's this young lad with but one small stone. He brings down this mighty giant. I like how Steve Lawson put it when he said, Everyone else said that Goliath is too big to hit, but David said he's too big to miss. Everyone else said, look how much bigger this giant is than me. But David said, look how much smaller that giant is than God. God's majesty was put on display when he delivered his people from the land of Egypt using a, a man who in his birth was put in a little basket and pushed out into the Nile. And God preserved his life, brought him into the palace of Pharaoh and used him to deliver his people in an incredible way. And then there is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Did He come to this world with, with greatness and power? No, he, where was His first night spent? In a feeding trough for animals. Was He born to a prince and a great king? No, He was born to Mary and Joseph, a very poor, humble couple. And yet, He was the one through whom God brought about the salvation of humanity. God loves, He loves to use what the world sees as weak and frail and foolish to accomplish great things. God's majesty is seen in the humble. One author said, God delights in working through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And you know, just to, as an aside, when you recognize that you are weak and empty and utterly dependent, that's the place that God will then use you. Because it is a testimony to God's greatness, not ours, right? What did Paul say? He loves to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise so that no man may boast before God. So brothers and sisters, let's step back a moment and think about what David has said in these first two verses of this psalm. And let me ask you the question, what do you think about when you gaze up into the heavens? Or when you see a, a majestic waterfall in nature, or you see a glorious sunset? What comes to your mind? Are you not amazed at the greatness of God? Are you not amazed as well when He uses the humble and frail and weak things of this world to accomplish His purposes? Beloved, we're to step back and David wants to draw our attention to these things so that we too would be stunned by the awesomeness of God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the church has lost this sense of awe. I believe that the church has lost this idea of majesty, this, this childlike 
wonder at His splendor and glory. We just don't see this anymore. The church has lost, I think, what it means that God is holy. That He's unlike anything else. We've lost that sense of amazement. When we look out at what He has made and what He has done, I, I think we've lost that sense of amazement and awe. I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, there is no greater use for the minds that God has given us. There is no greater use for the hearts that He has given us than to ponder and meditate and reflect on the greatness of God. There is no more noble use of our thoughts than to consider the glory and majesty of the One who has made all things. I like how A.W. Tozer put it in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, when he said these words, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Without doubt, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. The mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. He's right. He's right. God is awesome. And that's the first point that we see from this psalm. The second point is, as David is looking up into the night sky, and as he's considering the awesomeness and the majesty of God, there's a question that comes to his mind. He begins to realize something about himself. That's the second point of the psalm here. It's an apparent question. That means an obvious question, an important question. Notice verse Look there with me where David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, here's the question. What is man that you take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? It's here in verse 3 that we come to realize that, that David was prompted to, to write this poem as he was looking up into the night sky. Notice here that he talks about the the moon and the stars. He doesn't mention the sun at all, so he's looking up into the night sky. And this is why uh, Charles Spurgeon titled this psalm the Psalm of the Astronomer. I didn't come up with that title on my own. I stole it from, from Pastor Spurgeon. The Psalm of the Astronomer. And as David is filled with the immensity, the, the, the mightiness of God, as he's looking into the, the sky, notice how he describes it. When I consider the the moon and the star, the work of your fingers. Now that's a very interesting way to phrase it. It's unique in the Scriptures. Every time that the Bible talks about God creating, it uses the idea of God created with His hands. God made it with His hands. In fact, one example is Psalm 102, verse 25. The heavens are the work of your hands. But here He says, your fingers. Now what's He trying to communicate through that? Does God have fingers, by the way? God have fingers? No, this is a, a poetic expression, right? God is spirit. Here he's simply just drawing to our, to our minds a picture. And that picture is with God's fingers. Just his fingers. He doesn't even need to use his whole hand. With just his fingers, he made this. Again, he's expressing the incredible power of God and his ability to do great things. And David here, he's uh, making this declaration, of, again, looking upon the glory of heaven and the splendor and majesty of the stars in order to set up a question. And his question is given in verse 4 because as he declares the significance of the universe, he also then comes to realize the insignificance of mankind, of himself. David here presents a key question in verse 4. Essentially, the question is this, what is man? That's a question that has plagued humanity for thousands of years, right? And now before we say, well, hey, maybe Robert Schuller was actually right. This is the most important question. Before we go there, let's remember the context here. Again, who is this psalm directed towards? Towards Yahweh, right? And who is the focus here? You see, in this question, God is not asking, who am I in this world? The tone of his question is, of what significance does any of us have realizing who God is? He's making a contrast here. If God is so immense and so powerful and so majestic and, and so utterly separate and different from us and greater than us, 
Why would he even acknowledge us? Why would he even give one single thought about any of us? We see this tone and this idea. He uses two words for man here. Notice he says, what is man that you should take thought of him or the son of man that you should care for him? In the Hebrew, there's two different words that he uses for man. The first one is enosh. It conveys this idea of weakness, of frailty. The second one is adam. Uh, Adam, right, comes from the word adamah, which means ground. It focuses on the fact that we are but dust. We came from dust, and that's where we're going back to. And so by using those two words, he, he, he helps us to understand. He's, he's focusing on the weakness of humanity. Psalm 103, verse 14 says, He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, Enosh, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Psalm 90, Moses uses both of these terms when he says, You turn man, Enosh. Back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, Ben Adam, son of Adam. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. That's us. And David recognizes this. And so as he's seeing the glory of God in the heavens, the question comes to his mind is, Do I even matter? What am I to you, God? that you would even think about or care for me. I mean, honestly, right, if, if we were to go out tonight and, and the skies were clear and there were no lights, we go up into the mountains, so we go up to the, to the prayer mountain and we're up there and there's, there's nothing else but the stars in the sky, imagine yourself there and you, you come out and you're looking up into the sky, is the first thought that comes to your mind, wow, how great I am. I am so amazing. Is that what comes to your mind? Not at all. If we're honest, it's just the opposite, isn't it? And that's what it was for David. He was utterly amazed. And what amazed him was this, that this great God would lower himself and humble himself to take thought of and to care for him. Those two verbs, take thought of, and care for. Uh, the first one to, to take thought of is this idea of to remember, to consider, to meditate upon. It's not just a quick thought, it's actually to think about. That word care for, that is mentioned as well, it means to, not just to have a, a feelings for, but it means to seek out, to look for someone to help them, to care for them, to provide for them. And so these two verbs are describing something much more than God just giving a quick thought and moving on. It's this idea of considering, meditating upon, thinking about how to provide and care for. And what's also important to realize is the tense of these two verbs in the Hebrew indicates this isn't a one-time action. It isn't that, okay, God might think of you one time and that's it. He's moving on to something else. It conveys a continuous thinking about, a continuous meditating upon and remembering, a continuous caring for. And this is what David cannot believe, that God who did all of this would even care about us, would even think about us, would even consider and meditate upon us. We're nothing compared to His great power, and yet He does care. And yet He does consider. And that's why David, and us as well, should be overwhelmed. Isn't that not amazing? I mean, think about that. I laugh because it just blows me away. When I, we talked earlier about how great God's power is, right? And how that's displayed in what He has made. And, and He would take time to think and care for us. When's, how many of you have received a phone call from President Duterte inviting you for lunch? I've yet to receive a call from my president, Donald Trump, inviting me to the White House, and I'm wondering, you know, why that is. Right? These are powerful men in positions of high authority. We aren't considered or given thought to as individuals, but yet the God who's much greater than any of these men, than any rulers on this earth, He gives time and care and consideration for each one of us. Isn't that amazing? Praise God for that. 
It's unbelievable to me. It's, it's, words cannot describe. Brothers and sisters, where do you find your value and your significance? It's not in the greatness of man. It's in the greatness of God. What's even more amazing is the answer that David gives to this question. What is man, he asks? Well, he gives the answer in verses 5 through 9. And I've called it the astonishing answer. Look there with me. Again, David has asked a question, what is man? The question has been pondered for centuries. Philosophers, scientists, psychologists, scholars, uh, world religions, all of them have tried to answer this question in one way or another. What is man? How did Darwin answer that question? Or Nietzsche? Or Marx? Or Joseph Smith? Or Buddha? Eastern mysticism? Apollo Kibaloi? What's their answer to that question? What is man? Are we some God or becoming like God? Are we some evolved being? Are we just part of nature? Do we come from nothing and return to nothing? Is that the answer? Well, what does the one true God have to say? The one who made us. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Stop there a minute. <laughs> it isn't just that, that God has created us. It isn't just that as amazing as it is. It isn't just that God takes thought of us and cares for us and thinks about and considers us. But here, David gives an astonishing answer that mankind is made uniquely different than any other creature on this planet or in this universe. David's point here is that mankind is not like the rest of God's creation at all. That He has given us a glory and a majesty and an honor He has made us. Notice in verses 6-8, through the psalmist describes the fact that God has given mankind authority over the animals, over the earth. David here is echoing back these verses in verses 6 and 7 should remind us of another time in Scripture where similar words were spoken. Did that remind you? Genesis chapter 1, right? Back on the sixth day of creation, what is it that he told Adam to do? What instruction were given to those first two humans, Adam and Eve, on this earth? the same words that are used here in Psalm 8. In fact, let me read from Genesis 1, verse 26. After creating the heavens, the earth, the, the lands, the, the sky, the seas, the uh, birds and fish, and all these things, day number 6 comes, and it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We see there are similar words, right? David's echoing back to this psalm. He's echoing back to that sixth day of creation as he's describing the responsibility given to mankind. And in that, we are reminded that at creation, God made us in his image. That is an amazing answer. What is man? A creature made in the image of the Creator. If we were not amazed and blown away and, and um, just filled with wonder at, at the fact that God who made all things would care for us and would take thought of us, this is absolutely astonishing that God not only takes thought of us and cares for us, but that He made us in His image, in His likeness. We're not evolved animals. We're not a glorified ape. Right? He didn't make us large like an elephant, or uh, though we might feel like that after some meals sometimes, but He didn't make us multicolored like a toucan. He, he didn't make us fast like a cheetah or powerful like a rhino. We can't fly like an eagle. But there's something about us that's different and unique compared to every other part of creation. And that is that you and I are in His image. That in some way we represent God. Not that we are God or becoming God, but in some way we reflect His image. 
Brothers and sisters, God is most seen among anything in all of creation. God is most seen in us. Think about that. Sin indeed has marred that image. There's no question. But the image is still there. James 3, I think, talks about that, that fact when he mentions uh, that we use our tongue um, in, in good ways and in bad ways to, to bless God, but also to curse man, the ones made in the image of God. So even, in, even sin, though it has marred the image, the image is still there. David describes us as being crowned with glory and majesty. Why is that? Because man is great? Because we are exalted? No, because God has put his, stamped his image upon us. We can reason, we can exercise our will, we are creative, we have conscience, we have morals, we speak and communicate, we have souls. All of these things are indicative of God's reflection. Even though we are weak, we are enosh, we are adam, we are weak and frail, at the same time God has chosen to make us in His image. We're not some cosmic experiment. We're not a random mutation. When God made us, in a sense, He put His own glory and reputation on the line by making us in His image. But regrettably, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are many who, who look at this psalm and, and they have a different focus. They come up with a different answer. They look at this psalm and they have used it rather than as a psalm to exhort, exalt and glorify God. They've used it as a, a means to exalt man. They focus on these center verses and they say, you know what? You're made in the image of God, so you need to love yourself. You're made in the image of God, and so you need to work on your self-esteem. That You have self-worth. You have value. It's all about man. And my question is simply this. Was this psalm written to exalt us? Was this psalm written for us? No. It was not. This psalm is all about God. Because listen, a right self-esteem is only found in a right God-esteem. If you want a healthy self-esteem, you will find it only in one place, is if you have a healthy God-esteem. If you have a right view of Him, then you'll have a right view of yourself. And that's his point. You know, the moon, the moon is, uh, uh, reflects the sunlight, right? It sort of is, presents an image of the sunlight. It doesn't generate light on its own. It simply reflects the light that comes to it. And in the same way, it is with us. We are but a reflection. The worth of the image depends upon the source of that image and the one who made it, right? It was uh, not long ago I read an article about somebody who found a, a painting in their attic of their home. And they sold this painting for, I think, $20.00. Uh, something like 1,000 pesos. And the person who bought the painting thought it looked familiar, so he took it to an art dealer, and they discovered that that painting was actually painted by Picasso. <laughs> All of a sudden, that painting was no longer worth $20. I think he ended up selling it for a few million dollars. Now, why was that? It was the same picture that was up in the attic. It was the same picture that was sold at the garage sale. What gave it value? The one who made it. See my point? Notice here, our value comes not from ourselves, but only because God has put His image upon us. Again, notice this psalm. It's all about God, right? He begins and ends with the declaration, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And then notice all of the pronouns within this psalm. You and your... Fifteen times he mentions these second-person pronouns, and that tells us it focuses on God. You and your, he's referring to him. David wrote this psalm to declare the majesty and splendor and greatness of God. And the fact that we're created in his image does not mean that we glory in ourselves. It means this, that we glory in the humility and goodness of God, right? Jeremiah 9.23 says this, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, 
that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. What is it that is to be our boast? A relationship with him. Not anything in us. In fact, any achievement that you or I have made, we cannot take credit for, right? So that no one may boast before the Lord. The only boast we have is in the God who made this universe and that He made us in His image. And yet, as we think about this question, we can only answer the question, what is man correctly, when we understand and embrace the glory and majesty of God. David asks and answers this question, and in doing so, he doesn't say, what is man, and then respond, wow, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty amazing. You need to love me. You need to care about me. Everybody honor me. Everybody love me. I'm important. Is that where David went with his response? But that's exactly what many in our culture and even many in our churches say. We've distorted the message of this psalm to make it focus and glory on, the human, on man, on humanity, rather than on God. Again, listen to what the self-love evangelist Robert Schuller has said. The most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I am unworthy. For once a person believes that he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Reformation theology failed to make clear that the core of sin is, listen to this, a lack of self-esteem. What does it mean to be saved? His answer, it means to be permanently lifted from sin, which he calls psychological self-abuse, permanently lifted from sin and shame to self-esteem. That's a serious statement. And this is not coming from someone who is unknown in a corner, a small little church somewhere in an unknown place. You see what he's saying here? This focus on loving ourselves is dangerous. He's saying, don't view yourself as an unworthy sinner. Don't do that. Jesus died for your self-esteem. That Jesus, he went up on that cross so that you would know how great you really are. He's saying that Jesus sacrificed himself so that you would think highly of yourself. But my Bible says in Romans 5.8 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> And see, the problem with this is if we're not careful and, and we focus on, on recognizing and saying we need to cultivate our self-worth and our self-esteem and our self-love, the problem where that can lead us is not only does it give us a wrong view of ourselves, it will give us a wrong view of Christ. Let me explain what I mean. Schuler also said this of the description as he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When the Son of God became man, he said this, by the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God honored the human race. By the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God honored the human race. The incarnation was God's glorification of the human being. Do you catch what he's saying here? Yet this is pervasive in this world, this idea and this thought that, that when Jesus Christ became man, that was really a glorification of the human being. No, it wasn't. Is that how the Bible describes the incarnation? Philippians 2, what does it say? When he became man, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He lowered himself. And not only did our Lord Jesus Christ do that, he lowered himself by not only becoming a man, but he lowered himself also by suffering a humiliating torture and blasphemy and cursing by suffering a death on a cross for something he did not do. Philippians 2 describes the Lord Jesus Christ going lower and lower and lower and lower. Why? Because we're great. Because we deserve it. Because we're awesome. Don't think you're an unworthy sinner because Jesus died for you. Is that why? No, Jesus made himself lower, not to show the glory of man, but to show the glory of God. 
Jesus went to that cross not because we are great, but because he is great. We did not deserve that. And friend, here's a a point where I need to stop and ask, have you confessed that you are an unworthy sinner in need of God's grace? Have you recognized that, that you have rebelled against God, that you have sinned against Him, that you have broken His law? Not sin as, as this man Robert Schuller defined it, but sin is, is breaking God's law. It's disobeying Him, the one who made us. Have you admitted and confessed that to God? Ask for His forgiveness and recognize that only through the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, can you be forgiven? That's the only way that your sin can be paid for. No other way. And God did that. He sent His Son not because we deserved it, not because He saw anything in us that made us forced, uh, that forced Him to do that, only because He cares for His creation. And He cared enough and loved us enough to send His own Son to take your place if you would but put your trust in Him. Jesus became a man not to die for our self-esteem, but to free us from our self-esteem. Jesus died not to feed our pride, but to kill it. And going back to Psalm 8, being made in His image tells us that we've been given an amazing privilege by an amazing God. Have we not? Amen? You still with me? And rather than saying, you know, I'm made in the image of God, so you need to love me. You need to value me. You need to care for me. No, the Bible has just the opposite. It says, you're made in the image of God. I need to love you. I need to care for you. The Bible never commands us to seek love or to need love. It only commands us to love, to give love. And please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The alternative of self-love is not self-hate. Actually, the opposite of self-love is to love God and love others. Isn't that, isn't that not, not what Jesus said is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The alternative to self-esteem is not to belittle ourselves. It is to recognize that we've been made in the image of God. Louis XIV was the king of France for over 72 years. His reign was the longest of any monarch in European history. And his uh, rulership brought about the golden age of of France, and he knew it. And he loved to boast about it. In fact, Louis referred to himself as the Sun King because His perspective, his idea was that he was at the center and that all the courts and all the people of France revolved around him. In fact, he had the sun put on the royal emblem in order to point that out. He loved the title that was given to him, Louis the Great. Well, Louis the Great died in 1715 of gangrene and a young bishop named Jean-Baptiste Massillon he was appointed to deliver the eulogy at King Louis the Great's funeral. Now one of the requests, the demands that Louis made um, at his death was that a single candle be put on top of his coffin that is, and have it lit. Again, he wanted all the center of attention to be focused on him, that he was the one light. It's very interesting as Jean-Baptiste Massillon, as he approached uh, the pulpit, He went up first to the coffin where the candle was lit. And in front of the massive, hushed crowd, he went up to that candle and blew it out. And he walked up the steps, stood behind the pulpit, and he began with these words. God alone is great. That... That's really the message of this psalm. This psalm is like Bishop Massillon, and it stands over our culture, it stands over the world, and it blows out the candle of self-love and self-exaltation and self-esteem, and it says these words, God alone is great.
God alone is great. Brothers and sisters, a right self-esteem is only found in a right God-esteem. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we see your glory on display in so many ways. We see your glory on full display in the heavens as we consider the power and the vastness of all the stars in the sky. We see your glory manifested on this earth. Lord, and just realizing the greatest of miracles was not the creation of our solar system. It was that you could turn a rebellious heart into one that loves you. That you could change our hearts from, from a sinner to a saint. Lord, I pray for any here who do not know you, who have not yet confessed their sins to you, that they would see your greatness and your glory and that you would bring them to recognize that they are one who needs salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, and for your children here, those who have put their trust in you, I pray, God, you would give us uh, a deeper appreciation and understanding of the greatness of your glory, that you would help us to better appreciate what it means that we are created in your image. And Lord, that we would not seek to exalt ourselves, but to exalt you. That we would not seek to, um, Lord, demand uh, to be loved, but Lord, that we would give love to others. Lord, thank you so much for this church. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the work you're doing here. And pray, God, that you would richly bless my brothers and sisters here, and, and use living word to be a light to a dark world, to be a, a testimony of your greatness and your glory. It is all about you, God. We pray these things in the name of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.